Hey everyone, it's Megan, and welcome to this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. First up, the stock market ended the week up 1.5%, but is still in bear market territory. What were last week's major market movers? Next, energy prices are on the rise again due to OPEC. What is OPEC, and why do they have such sway over the energy market? Finally, we got multiple data points on the labor market last week. What does it say about the health of employment and your job security? After that, this week I'm taking a deep dive with NYU professor Howard Yaris to talk about his new book and our Q4 FFM book club pick, Understandable Economics. Learn why we both believe in the power of economic and financial literacy, as well as his take on some current major economic issues and policies. Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Up first, what's moving the markets? Early last week, the stock market rallied in the aftermath of the UK market turmoil of the week prior. However, Much of those gains were erased in the second half of the week following OPEC's announcement of cuts to oil production to boost waning energy prices, as well as strong September employment numbers, both of which dashed investor hopes that the Fed might start to ease rate hikes soon. For the week ending October 7th, the S&P 500 was up 1.5%, but still remains solidly in bear market territory down 23.6% year-to-date. The more interest-rate-sensitive sector of the market are down even more, with real estate down 31.7% and the tech-heavy NASDAQ down 31.9%. Energy stocks rallied last week following OPEC's announcement, up 13.6% in just one week, and now are up over 50% year-to-date. Energy remains the only industry sector of the S&P 500 in positive territory this year. Interest rates, after weakening the week prior in the wake of the weakening of the British pound, rallied again last week with 10-year rates continuing to march closer and closer to 4%, ending the week at 3.89%. As a reminder, the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, is aggressively raising interest rates in order to combat widespread inflation. Last week's announcements by OPEC, as well as the continued strength of the labor market, gives the Fed all the cover it needs to continue to raise interest rates as inflation continues to persist. The Fed raises interest rates to make it more expensive to borrow and cool demand in the hopes of easing at least one source of inflationary pressure. To date, the Fed has raised the federal funds rate, the overnight lending rate between banks, five times already this year. Their next scheduled meeting is November 1st and 2nd, where they are expected to raise the federal funds rate another 75 basis points, up to 3.75 to 4%. This would be the sixth consecutive rate increase this year, the fourth consecutive 75 basis point increase, and the fastest pace of interest rate increases by the Fed since the 1980s. In other market-related news last week, Elon Musk made an abrupt about-face on his buyout of Twitter. 
back in April, Musk launched a tender offer for the company at $54.20 per share, which the Twitter board ultimately agreed to. Just a few weeks after the merger agreement was released, Musk tweeted the deal was on hold over a key diligence concern, the number of real users on the platform. Musk claimed Twitter was not providing adequate information to allow his team to accurately assess the spam and fake accounts, and that his calculations implied there were far more fake users than Twitter publicly disclosed. In July, Musk officially issued a letter filed with the SEC trying to walk away from the deal completely, and in response, Twitter filed a lawsuit to force him to close or pay the billion-dollar breakup fee. The trial was scheduled to begin this month, and with the trial looming, Musk proposed closing the deal on the original 54.20 per share terms, and a judge has now agreed to delay the trial to the end of the month in order to give both teams a chance to work things out. However, a major hurdle to closing remains, Musk's funding. Back in the spring, Musk had put together a team of both equity investors and bank debt financing in order to fund the $44 billion buyout. Markets have moved a lot since then, with interest rates significantly higher and equity prices lower. If he can't hold the funding together, he can't close the deal. The trial is set to resume October 28th, so Musk has until then to close or face trial. Up next, what is OPEC? A major market and economic force in the news last week was OPEC. So what is it? The Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, also known as OPEC, is a cartel of many of the largest oil-producing countries in the world. It currently has 13 members, including its five founding members, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. The cartel dates back to 1960, and you may recall was a key factor in the stagflationary period of the 1970s, when in 1973, they decided to quadruple the price of oil. In 2016, 10 additional countries became the plus in OPEC+. They are non-OPEC members, but attend OPEC meetings and cooperate with the cartel. Russia is part of OPEC+. So how do these countries have so much sway over energy prices? Because they control a significant part of the global oil supply. While the U.S. still produces the most oil of any country, we use much of it ourselves. OPEC plus countries are major producers and exporters of oil to other countries around the world. Collectively, OPEC plus controls over 50% of global oil production today and more than 90% of current proven oil reserves. Last week, OPEC Plus agreed to drop daily oil production by 2 million barrels per day. Globally, about 90 million barrels are produced daily, so the cuts represent more than 2% of global supply. When you reduce supply, that increases prices, and oil prices have already increased in response to the announcement. As of Friday, crude oil futures closed over $92 a barrel, up over 7% from just before the OPEC announcement. 
Gas prices closely track oil prices, so be prepared to face higher prices at the pump going forward as well. This is highly concerning for several reasons. One, energy prices remain a major source of inflationary pressure, and much of the slowing of inflation in recent months was due to energy prices abating. Higher oil prices increases the likelihood of persistent inflation and further Fed rate hikes. Two, higher energy prices help Russia continue to fund their war against Ukraine. Russia is the second largest individual country producing oil, behind only the U.S., and the second largest exporter of oil in the world, only behind Saudi Arabia. Now, OPEC exists because its member economies are highly dependent on oil. By working together to control oil production and thus prices, they hope to have more oil price stability, which has dramatic impact on their economies. They are likely making the move to cut production because of the looming global recession. Recessions always result in a decline in energy demand and tend to send energy prices downward as a result. Their production cuts are a smart business move to prevent a rapid price decline. But that doesn't mean that those cuts don't hurt us, given the impact on global energy markets. It does, however, highlight the importance of U.S. energy independence and the impact that has, not only economically, both domestically and abroad, but also in foreign policy for countries around the world. Last up, what's the latest on the labor market? Multiple releases on the current state of the labor market came out last week. Why does it matter? First, from a personal finance perspective, a strong labor market means more reliable employment, income, and rising wages, which in the face of current inflation is critical for families to be able to continue to afford even their everyday expenses. But the other major influence the labor market has is on the actions of the Fed. The Fed, as you may remember, has a two-pronged mission to promote price stability and full employment for the U.S. economy. Right now, they are aggressively hiking interest rates to rein in inflation in their goal of price stability. They will continue to do so until they see inflation come down, with one exception, employment. If they see unemployment start to rise beyond acceptable levels, they may be forced to stop and even reverse rate hikes. Historically, the Fed has indicated that 4 to 4.5% unemployment is a level consistent with full employment, which allows for new labor market entrance and job switching. Last Friday's employment situation report showed the unemployment rate for September to be just 3.5%, returning to pre-pandemic lows and consistent with rates not previously seen since the 1950s. The U6 rate, which is a broader measure of unemployment, including those underemployed as well as discouraged workers, was 6.7%, the lowest measure ever recorded for this rate. One of the challenges of the current labor market is a long-term demographic trend, our aging population. The labor force participation rate has been on a downward decline since the Great Recession, with more and more workers going into retirement and fewer new workers coming in to replace them. 
This has created an extremely tight labor market with more jobs in many sectors than employees to fill them, driving up wages. Hourly wages are up 5.8% over the last year. This is great news for families facing higher inflation, but remember, it can become a vicious inflationary cycle. Higher wages for you means higher costs for your employer, which they can only afford to pay if they raise prices for their customers, which means higher prices for you. Another indicator for the labor market? Last week, we also got the August JOLTS report, or Job Openings, Labor Turnover, and Separations. Earlier this year, job openings hit the highest level ever reported, but in August, we actually saw job openings drop 10%, the first sign that this tight labor market might finally be softening a bit. This is what I had been anticipating. The tight labor market will leave the unemployment rate low for longer, but we are likely to see a rapid decline here in job openings first, given the record level of job openings posted for much of this year. We have also seen a slew of major companies announcing hiring freezes and layoffs. So far, I don't yet see that in the weekly jobless claim numbers, but there may be a reason for that. Unlike the rapid employment cuts during the pandemic, which mostly impacted hourly workers in the retail and leisure and hospitality sectors, Many of the announcements I'm seeing so far are higher-income, white-collar jobs, places like banks, tech companies like Apple and Meta, Big Pharma. Those jobs often come with severance packages, and whether or not you can file for unemployment if you are receiving severance varies by state. Overall, the labor market still remains a bright spot in the current economy but that also gives the Fed ample room to continue rate hikes to fight inflation. However, be aware there are beginning to be signs that the labor market is softening, with a double-digit decline in job openings last month. If you work in a more cyclical industry, I'd recommend reconsidering any job moves right now, as well as thinking about beefing up your emergency fund in the event you experience job loss in the next 6 to 12 months. For this week's Deep Dive, I'm joined by former financial executive and current NYU professor, Howard Yaris, who shares my passion for spreading financial and economic literacy. Howard is an economist, professor, attorney, businessman, and activist who greatly enjoys explaining complex issues in a clear, interesting, and easily accessible way. He has taught a variety of courses on economics and business and currently teaches at NYU. Previously, he served as Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Radian Group, one of the largest guarantors of debt in the world. He has also served on the boards of organizations that advocate for safer streets, help for the homeless, and support the arts. Howard graduated from Brown University, studied at the London School of Economics, and earned a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Please welcome Howard. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Megan. 
Um, so I wanted to kick things off because, and I wanted to have you on today because I think we share a very important mission and that is how important we both believe kind of wider spread financial and economic literacy really is. I know that's the sole reason why I created Family Finance Mom and this podcast. So I'd love for you to share why this mission is so important to you. Well, it's so important to me. It really kicked into high gear in 2006. We had Occupy Wall Street. Uh, we had the Tea Party and then Donald Trump was elected. And people just feel so frustrated with our economic system. If you look at surveys, young people have more faith in, in other systems than they do in capitalism. People are just losing faith. And I think the reason a large part of the reason that we're having these problems is that people just don't understand about economics and finance. And so they they can be misled into supporting policies that really don't benefit them, that really don't make society more productive and equitable. And so there's a real problem out there in that people don't have a good understanding about what's going on and therefore don't support the best policies. So my book was an attempt to, in a very small way, address some of that. No, absolutely. And you just came out with a brand new book in September, Understandable Economics. Um, and we'll get into some of the specifics on that. One of the areas that I wanted to highlight that I think your book does a really good job explaining is the Fed. Um, I think it's an area of the economy that most non-finance, non-economics people really don't usually pay attention to, but they've been kind of a major spotlight has been put on the Fed in the last couple of years. Um, you do such an awesome job talking about what the Fed is, what its role is, and the importance in controlling the money supply in your book, as well as the dangers of not having a central bank. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the, you know, you raised the point that a lot of people are clamoring for things because they don't really understand economics. What would you say to those who are sort of team abolish the Fed? Well, if you abolish something, you have to have something in its place. The Fed produces the U.S. dollar. Where is it going to come from? I just, you it, again, you can't just abolish, abolish it because we need money to, to survive. So someone or something has to, to issue it. Take Bitcoin. Maybe someone would say a cryptocurrency would be an alternative. What are the rules under which Bitcoin is issued? Who's issuing it? What, what, how do we know whether they can they can change the amount of Bitcoin? If if they change the amount of Bitcoin, uh, they say they can't. But suppose they change the rules and double the amount of Bitcoin floating out there. Who are you going to complain to? We don't. Even, we're not even sure. Who set up Bitcoin? There are some rumors, but there's no certainty as to as to who set up Bitcoin. We know exactly who's creating the U.S. dollar. We know where they are. We know where they work. We know the exact rules under which they operate. We elect the people who put them in power. So it's it's a transparent system that we could look to uh, and hold accountable. All of the other systems that get proposed are 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 nowhere near as transparent or reliable. One other uh, thing people who, who say we should abolish the Fed site is the gold standard. And to tie our, our entire monetary system to this relatively useless uh, metal 
is they tried it and it, it, it wasn't very good. In fact, right. they, we, we've you know, been there and done that, right? Been there, done that, exactly right. And it, it basically uh, prevents the government from helping out in a recession or trying to damp down inflation, which is what they're doing now when, when times are relatively good. So the government, and in other words, we would have no control over our economy. We'd go back to the boom bust era we had before we, we had the Federal Reserve controlling our money supply and trying to influence the economy to make it less volatile and uh, better for the average person. So, so you brought up two alternatives, kind of um, cryptocurrency, which has gained popularity recently, going back to what we used to do that was failing. And so we did away with it. And then there's kind of a third stocking horse, which would be turn that authority over to say Congress. What's problematic about that? Oh, well, it's in theory, maybe it makes some sense, but in practice, it has always been a disaster. It almost always results in what's called hyperinflation. Money starts to lose its value. The classic example is the Weimar Republic in Germany right before World War II, when the government simply prints money to, to pay for what it needs. It's so much easier than taxing people, which is always unpopular, or issuing debt which can be difficult and expensive. So the government just prints money. And the more they print, the more the inflation goes up, more prices go up. So the more they have to print, and it's a vicious cycle, which results in the death of the monetary system and very often the death of many people who live in the society. Certainly that was the case in Germany. And so what are the separations today between Congress and the Fed that prevent the Fed from putting us in that position? Oh, the point I make in understandable economics is, is that the Fed governors are very similar to the U.S. Supreme Court justices. They're, they come out of the political system. They're appointed by the political system, but they have a certain independence. Federal judges are there for life. Fed governors are there for 14 years. So there's a, a distance from the political system. There's some protection for their tenure. And hopefully they're they're not as influenced by politics as people in Congress. Or or short-term gains. Or short-term they... gains. Yes, that's that's the hope. On the other hand, the point I, I make is that these are not representative people. These are people who are extremely successful in banking and finance and to some extent academia. And so their perspective on the world may be a lot different from most people's. So I think. Like I said, I think you cover that topic very well, especially for, you know, everyday people who may not kind of understand all of those nuances. And I can't remember if it's part of that same discussion, but you also bring up the recent increase in supporters for MMT or modern monetary theory. And we actually, so on at Family Finance Mom, I run a quarterly book club and we actually last year read The Deficit Myth, which is one right. of the big, is written by one of the big kind of proponents. Stephanie Kelton's book. She's the, the big, uh, she's the face of modern monetary yes, theory. And has been economic advisor to many prominent Democrats. And I think the whole Democratic Party, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe the Senate, Democratic Certainly Senate. Bernie Sanders and AOC. Okay. She's, she's definitely advised them. So for those listening who may not be kind of versed in what MMT is, can you give kind of your, you're very good at this like explanation <laughs> of complicated things. So can you kind of give your version of what MMT is? Sure, but I can't resist saying up front, there's nothing modern <laughs> about it and there's nothing theoretical about it. It's a fact. 
but they just are, are, are running with it. And I'll explain what I'm talking about. Modern monetary theory says the government doesn't have a budget like you and I do because the government can create as much money as it needs. We can all go to the basement of the treasury in Washington, DC and see the printing press. They can print as much money as they need. And if I could go off on a tangent for 30 sure. seconds. No, go ahead. The discussion of social security is gonna run out of money. As the former Fed chair, Alan Greenspan said, that cannot happen. They have a printing press. It cannot run out of money. It's that simple. They could just print it to print enough money to meet all the obligations. So what MMT says is they recognize that the government has the ability to create as much money as it needs. The government is, is different from every other entity on the planet or they can create money. You can create money. I can create money. Citibank can create money. Only the government can create money. So that's a fact. That's nothing modern about that. That's it's called fiat money. That's that's the monetary system uh, we're in. What they say is the government can keep printing money until we start seeing inflation. That's a fact too. That the there really isn't any harm if if you can create ten dollars and a ten dollar sandwich is 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 an extra ten dollar sandwich is produced. There's no inflation. The problem with monetar modern monetary theory is that they want to give Congress this. I alluded, we have alluded to this before, right. the ability to just keep spending until they see inflation. And I just don't believe Congress would use that power. Uh, how should, would how would should not use would not use restraint in that. Would not use restraint. I think one of the biggest things they do is start giving massive tax breaks to their donors. So that would be probably first on the list for many Congress people. So yes, the government can create money and it does. It does create money when it runs deficits. It, it borrows money and the amount of money in circulation increases. But the Fed is always on top of it, making trying to make sure inflation doesn't get out of control. That's exactly what they're doing now. But without that check and balance, my fear is that we'd go the way every other country that uh, gave the elected officials the ability mm -hmm. to, to, to create more money to fund whatever programs that they like or they think their constituents like or they think their donors would like and there would be no check on the system and it would basically, they basically lose control. Do you think that some of what has gone on in the last two years has added any kind of credible economic evidence to some of the flaws associated with MMT? Well, I think we've seen inflation for the first time in three decades, and that's the big risk with MMT. They do have an important point, though, which I, I think sometimes gets lost. If the government can engage in deficit spending, can, in other words, increase the amount of money floating around out there, and that increase, that increased spending is matched by an increase in productivity. What am I talking about? Head Start. They've figured out that for every dollar invested in Head Start, um, you get a 13% return. Not only is the dollar return, but you, you increase the productivity and the, the incomes of, of children by more than the actual expenditure. That's a no-brainer. Right. That's, that's, that's a great idea. My feeling is that not every program the Congress would spend on in the event they were given the unfettered right to produce as much money as they wanted would be as productive and as efficient as something like Head Start. Well, and I sometimes think that 
for all of the positives of our political system and our capitalist system that two-year election cycles, four-year election cycles, like many of like investment in general is a long-term game for to be successful, right? And I think right. sometimes our politicians are more motivated by the short-term outcomes of the two-year election cycle or the four-year election cycle. And we don't give enough thought, credence, credibility to most investment outcomes, most good long-term investment outcomes take much longer than that to play out. Is that that's fair? why our infrastructure investment is lagging because that's a long tail kind of thing. Right, right, right. Um, so as I've mentioned several times now, I think you do an awesome job of explaining these complex Thanks. economic topics in a way that anyone can understand. But you also, in many cases, go a step further and not shying away from assessing the success or failure of various um, existing policies and also making recommendations for improvement. Mm -hmm. So if you looked at our economy today, what parts do you see as working well and what areas do you see there being room for improvement? Well, I think there's there's underinvestment. Let me back up. There's There's always this talk about regulation. Are you for regulation or against regulation? And as I say in the book, that's that's really should not be the discussion. You should be for regulation that makes sense, that protects the water, that protects the air, and against regulation that just puts unnecessary burdens. I live in New York City, and people always talk about affordable housing. And yet the city has so many regulations, from parking minimums to very onerous zoning requirements to uh, requirements regarding minimum sizes for apartments that make it more expensive. So that regulation is causing the city to be less productive. It's, it's raising the cost of housing here, preventing ambitious uh, new, new people from moving here. And again, making the city less vibrant and less productive. So I think the, the question is not as overly simplistic. Should we have more regulation? Should we have less regulation? But we need the right kind of regulation. And, there are great examples on both sides of, of bad regulation. I just gave you one in, in New York City and, and good regulation. Certainly regulations that protect our air and water are, are absolutely essential. So this, it's funny, my brother-in-law was here this weekend um, and he's a high school band director in Massachusetts and they just built a brand new high school at a cost of $80 million for mm -hmm. a school of call it 350 to 400 students. And he was just going through all of the accesses and wastes that were associated. And so one of the examples he gave was um, as the band director, like nobody consulted him or the choir director or the drama department on like the specs for the auditorium. And so they ordered twice as many lights <laughs> and lighting as was needed for this mm -hmm. facility. And so he's now got like, $200,000 worth of lighting equipment in storage that he should be using for like his band instruments. And that comes out of taxpayers' pockets, right? So oh, absolutely. And for better or worse, I live in New York City, which <laughs> with all due modesty may give the best examples of this kind of, of waste. And as I say in the book, at some point, even the most sensible infrastructure doesn't make sense if the cost is bloated enough. Right. A couple of examples. I'm on my local community board. 
to put a bathroom in a park costs $4 million to make a subway station handicap, handicap accessible costs on average $70 million, which I don't understand because you could build putting in the elevators again, to make it handicap accessible, right. you can build an apartment building with elevators for $70 million. Right, right. Uh, the, the, and last but not least, the Second Avenue subway, which was finished a few years ago after 70 years of delays, uh, cost about $2.4 billion per mile, whereas a similar extension in Paris cost about $400 million per mile. And the person who oversaw the Paris project was, was chastised, chastised for going over budget. Uh, and the New York City and the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, which which runs New York subways, was asked why was it so expensive compared to the Paris project, and he said, "Well, New York is an old city with unions. Obviously, he's never been to Paris. <laughs> so there's again, and I guess it causes people to become cynical, which is ties into why I wrote the book because the more people understand, the more people feel comfortable looking into this." I think we'll see more pressure for better policies, better spending, and just uh, a better environment in general. But like, so those examples that we both agree are absurd, mm -hmm. right? They're and absurd. I, and I think that <laughs> that is why many conservatives are kind of anti-big government. I think in some cases, you're likely just my, this is me reading between the lines of your book. You're generally in favor of bigger government. Am, am we have I... no choice. We need roads. We need right. ways to get around. So There's how no... do we how do we avoid how do we make the government better stewards of capital? I guess would be the question. Well, maybe it's not the most insightful part of the book, but I try to get people interested, and then I I, I give them I exhort them to to get involved in politics, to look at what not what politicians are saying, but what they're actually doing to vote for people who don't maybe don't have the, the most flashy rhetoric, but are good at getting things done. Uh, maybe run for office yourself, maybe protest. People need to get involved because if, if they don't, we're going to see, we're just going to see this continued waste. And the answer is not to say, well, let's not have roads. Let's not have infrastructure. Right. Let's not have a subway system. That's not an answer. If we're going to be in a productive, wealthy, equitable society. We need this infrastructure. We need kids to be educated. We we need we we need rules for, for how people are treated at work. To just throw up your hands and say, well, we'll just go to a state of anarchy. We won't do anything. That just doesn't work. Right. 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 You and you raise a series of potential policy changes that you think would be beneficial to correct some of these. Well and maybe let's go back for a second. We talked about kind of regulation, what are, let's go back to what do you think is going well and where are we falling short other than kind of regulation? Like, I think you're probably generally pro-capitalism, even when a lot of people today are abolish capitalism. Well, I don't even understand, I don't even understand what abolish capitalism means. Right. right, right. Because as I talk in the book, all of these isms, socialism, communism, capitalism, the, the, the meanings, whatever the meaning they may have had when those terms were coined has sort of been lost. We call Trump a conservative, which is just Orwellian. He's 180 degrees opposite from a conservative. He's the ultimate radical. He's trying to, to uh, change, our, change our, our, our democratic system. We call uh, 
businesses that try to make money by cozying up to politicians and giving them money. Uh, capitalists, that's, that's the opposite of capitalism. Capitalists fight, fiercely fight for consumers. Uh, we call people who try to keep the press honest, liberal. Uh, I, so the, a lot of these terms have lost their meaning. When people talk about capitalism, I don't think they really talk about throwing out the whole system, having the government take over General Motors and the government produce cars. I think what they're talking about is, is maybe more government control versus less government control. A spectrum but as opposed to a spectrum, exactly. black and white and like there's shades of gray. <laughs> but there's a problem and I'll, I'll use Occupy Wall Street as an example. They were, a lot of those people were rightly fed up with the way our system was heading, but they didn't have any proposal for making it better. In fact, they actually uh, rejected running for office and getting involved in making the rules that could make society better. So I, that's, again, the, the thrust of the book. If you're not happy, you need to stand up and try to do something about it. Right. It's not going to correct itself. I think you bring up such a good point. It's so easy. And I think too, I mean, I know here in Connecticut, it's, you know, it's an election year. There were in, in our state, our governor elections are at midterm years. So it's just, I'm inundated already with all of the ads and it's far, it's always far easier to be critical of what exists and who's in power than it is to, and for whatever reason, I feel like we respond to people doing that more than embracing and being open to alternatives or new ideas or, you know, ways to do it better. Um, well, this is beyond my era of expertise, but there's the hope slash versus fear approach. Right. Yep. And Psych psychologists have determined that the, their theory is that fear works better than hope. A hundred percent. It's easier way... to unite people against a villain than it is to unite people against an idea that inspires hope. And there's a biological background for that. For for millennia, human beings have, have had to watch out and not get killed. So fear is something that they, is is a sentiment that protects them from dying whereas hope it's a great thing but it's it's not as important as preserving your life so that's the theory why fear works more effectively than hope in political campaigns so let's talk about hope for a second um you do give a lot of potential policy changes that you think could make things better mm -hmm. so if you had a magic wand and you were in charge or you could affect those changes, what are the one or two policy changes that you would make that you would think would be most impactful and have the most meaningful change? Well, I think the most important thing, and this might appeal to your audience, is education. If you look at countries with great natural resources, like Russia or Venezuela or Congo, Congo and Venezuela have among the, the greatest natural resources of any country on the planet, they're poor. Uh, mm -hmm. Russia is not necessarily a poor poor nation, but compared to the rest of Europe, it's a very poor nation. Whereas look at Germany or Switzerland or Japan or Israel, they have nothing. They have no natural resources whatsoever. And they're among the richest nations in the world. And I always ask the class, why? Because when I ask the class, why, why certain, certain nations are rich? One of the first answers that always comes up is natural resources. And I use those examples to show, well, there might even be a reverse correlation. It might be negative that um, that 
sometimes countries that have abundant natural resources are, are, are poorer than those that have fewer. And the reason is education. That's what it comes down to. If you look at how well educated and trained the people in the nation are, there's always a strong correlation with how rich it is. So I would, I would have a, a robust uh, educational system. And the irony is, if you look at municipalities, again, coming back to New York City where I live, they're cutting funds for education. This is the one, this is the most effective way to make society not only wealthier, but I would, I would argue happier and just more content in general. So that would be the one thing, one major change I would make. Well, and you'd think we could get people behind that, given what we all just lived through. I mean, I know as parents, the biggest struggle that I heard from many of my followers was just like, how are you supposed to go to work every day when you don't know if your kid's school is going to be open next week? You don't know if your kid's going to be sent home for two weeks at a time. You don't know, you know, just all of a sudden to have something that everybody relied on so consistently without really ever giving it a second thought to have that taken away, you would think would have kind of overnight made everybody realize how important that is, not just from even, and I don't disagree with any of your points about the long-term payoff of investing in education, Mm -hmm. but even just the day-to-day reality of being a productive economic society, like we need education at the youngest levels, but then also obviously the importance as kids get older too. Absolutely. And there are so many facets to this. Someone once said democracy doesn't work without an educated citizenry. And that there's, I think that should be obvious to most people because the the less people know, the more they can be led to believe things that are just not manipulated. Right. Absolutely. In a word, manipulated. So education is so critical for so many reasons and why we're cutting back on it at a time when it's more important than ever is, is, it's kind of heartbreaking to me. So that would be clearly the number one thing I would I would change uh, our approach to education and um, and childcare uh, and those kinds of issues. Uh, Finland is always cited as having among the best educational systems in the world, and they've interviewed educators in Finland, and they say we don't accept failure. We just don't say, well, this is an inner city school, and we expect less. No, that's. It's, they don't, they just don't accept it. And I don't think we should accept it either. That's such a good point. And I think you're right. I mean, it's definitely an area that I agree with you on 100%. And I would imagine that most of my listeners do as well. Um, so but then what- I, well to be provocative. So why, why, why is the, our government that we elect that reports to us going in the other direction? Maybe because there aren't enough women and mothers in in politics. I'll just I'll, I'll be provocative back and good. Well, I hope, <laughs> I hope the more involvement from people who have good good heads on their shoulders and and goodwill in their hearts, the better off we'll all be. And I guess maybe to put that question back to you, what do you think it is that prevents policymakers from making? I mean, it would seem like everybody should agree. I think, and maybe this is, maybe this is the answer. Like, I do think everybody believes in investing in education. I think the problem always comes into everybody has different perspectives as to what that looks like. So then that's, I feel like where the sticking point and the debate and the inaction comes from. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. No, well, this ties into the $4 million bathroom. So much of our educational funding goes to bureaucrats. I remember, again, New York City. New York City has more school bureaucrats than the nation of France. So it's 
there are two sides to to every coin. There's the spending, and then there's the 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 getting something for what you're actually spending. There's the amount of money, and then there's what you're getting for it. Right. And so, yes, I think there should be good funding for education, but you have to make sure that money is spent correctly and properly and effectively. And I think that's where the problem is. And because it's often not, it leads to the cynical response, which we discussed, of people saying, not one penny ever. It's a waste. It's a black hole. And I don't want to support it. So, when you when the money is not spent effectively, it it's it's more than just wasted money. It further cynicism and it it impedes our ability as a society to do things we absolutely need to do. We can't just say we're not going to do it. We need to do it, and we need to do it right. And by spending money in a way that's not effective, we're just we're just throwing away that our ability to do what's what's needed. Right. No, I I agree. Um. I do want to bring up one of the potential policy changes you raised that I honestly, I don't think I've seen ever seen it raised anywhere before. And maybe I'm not plugged into enough economic circles, but, um, and to be honest, I felt like it kind of is at the total other end of the spectrum from any of your other policy change <laughs> suggestions. And it's the elimination of corporate taxes altogether. It's so interesting. I mentioned that in a paragraph and yet, People have, a lot of people have asked <laughs> me about that. And I'll, I'll just tell you how I came up with that. I worked for a very large corporation, a very large public company on the New York Stock Exchange. And so much effort and so much time was devoted to doing these corporate tax returns. The returns themselves in paper were literally a couple of feet high. Not only did we devote enormous resources to these returns, but they also influenced our actions as a company. It may have caused us to do things that were not efficient. It did cause us to do things that are not efficient. Another company I worked for had board meetings ab abroad in Bermuda, and a lot of companies do this, to avoid certain taxes in the United States. The bottom line is taxes, business taxes, corporate taxes, have a way of distorting corporate behavior. Now, that's that's a necessary evil if, if it's going to raise a lot of money that's needed to fund the government. But if you look at the total amount of money raised by corporate taxes, if you look at the percentage of the federal budget that comes from corporate taxes, it's approximately 6%. So my thought was to just eliminate that all, free up corporations to do what presumably they know what to do best, be consumer demands competed in the market, uh, and and just raise taxes on, on presumably wealthy people by 6%, they'd certainly make up for it in terms of the increase in value of their, um, their, the, the, the shares that they own. It would also create an, an economic boom in America because all of this activity that gets pushed abroad for tax reasons would all come back. Mm -hmm. So it's, again, if 50% if of the federal revenue were coming from corporations, yes, it's a, a critical point and you, a critical component of their funding and they really can't cut it out. But it's 6%, given that you could make our, our business community so much more efficient, that's something that, that should be considered. And the point that I, I make, and this is the, the bottom line point, is that seems like a right wing or quote unquote conservative policy. But if you think about it, it would benefit everyone and, and we should measure policies, we should assess policies, but how much good they would do, not by who's right. promoting them. Well, and I have a sister who is a tax accountant. Mm -hmm. um, and she I- think, But she might be out of a job. 
Well, she worked, <laughs> she works for, well, she probably would even working at a corporation, um, yeah. but she worked for ENY for years um, and now works in as in-house. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a tremendous amount of business decisions that are like, I remember back in college taking like economics courses and finance courses, and we'd always do these whole theories like, let's pretend we live in a frictionless world with no transaction costs or taxes, but then everything you learn goes out the window because that's not the world we live in. And so many decisions are driven by taxes. And when I was a hedge fund analyst, we owned one of those shell companies that's domiciled in Luxembourg. And so you have to mm -hmm. hire someone in Europe who lives in Luxembourg to originate your board meeting calls so that you can meet your, you can check the box on what you need to you know, minimize your taxes here in the U.S. And it's it's kind of nuts. Absolutely. And this is not cost free. We all pay higher prices for everything we buy as a result of all these taxes. So, again, I'm not saying that the government should give up 6% of the revenue. Right. Simply make it a wash. We're, go we're going to increase taxes on wealthy people. Pick whatever number you, you want from wealthy people by 6%. But we'd all be enormously better off because we would suddenly have this boom in business, uh, more jobs, more productivity. And certainly I, I, I have to believe that the stock market would increase by more than 6% or whatever it is people right. are going to lose as a result well, of. And one of the other things you talk about is changing or eliminating the capital gains rate. And one of the arguments I think that many people have against that is that it's double taxation because right. corporations are paying taxes the profits that are after-tax profits from corporations are what drive, presumably, increases in shareholder value. And so you're double taxing those shareholders by doing that. And so I could, I've never been a proponent, I'll be honest, um, in favor of eliminating capital gains rate. But in that scenario, maybe it looks a little different. Well, in that scenario, there's, there's, I'll go out on a limb. I don't think there's any justification for maintaining a different rate for capital gains. Because at that point, why should you tax a dollar of investment income different than a dollar of work income? So I don't think there's any justification at that point. Actually, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but eliminating the capital gains, the lower tax rate capital gains, would probably make up the shortfall that eliminating the corporate tax would, would cause. So it, would, it, would, it, it could be a wash. And my, my guess is that it would be. My only, I guess my only concern would be, you, you make the point about all the money that is spent by corporations on tax avoidance, on tax compliance. Mm -hmm. Would that cost not then just shift to the most wealthy for the same purpose and then the disproportionate burden fall on not the wealthy, but on those living on investment income and retirement and things like that? No, because I think that, ending the corporate tax would have a, a, um, a, and then increasing the tax on wealthy people to make up for the shortfall, given the, the boom in business, uh, given the efficiencies created, uh, I, I can't imagine that that would have that big an effect. And, and again, I, mm -hmm. and I was going to say, and I guess most, most people that fall outside the wealthy bucket are living on 401k proceeds, which get taxed at ordinary income anyway. Right. 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 Okay. All right. I'm, 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 I'm reconsidering my thoughts on these. On also, these let me make the point that the capital, the lower capital gains tax creates an, talk about friction, 
a lot of money is spent, I'm sure your sister could tell you about this, on recharacterizing ordinary income as capital gains income. For instance, hedge fund managers, some of the wealthiest people in the world, all pay a lower tax rate, lower tax rate than you and I or the average teacher or fireman because of this capital gains differential. That would go away along with all of the friction that creates, all of the, 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 effort, the, the entire effort that's, that's devoted to tax shelters and, and these trusts and recharacterizing income as capital gains income rather than ordering income, it would all go away. It would be a much simpler tax system. And in terms of cheating, the simpler it is, in my opinion, the more difficult it is to cheat. If you have a 50,000 page tax code, I think the IRS, even with the additional employees, if they get them, is outmanned because it's just so complicated mm -hmm. that, that Clever, a group of clever lawyers can always outsmart the the incredibly understaffed IRS. So to the extent you simplify it, I think you also um, reduce friction and encourage compliance. I, I can hear the big four um, rallying their lobby efforts <laughs> as we speak. If, and maybe that's why a lot of them are starting to separate off their consulting arms because they feel threatened. I don't know. Um, I don't think this is this is was put in the book. I don't think it's <laughs> going to go any further than the book, but maybe maybe people, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so one current event question before we kind of wrap things up, what do you and this is a question that I've been getting a lot, too, and you're a far more economic expert than I am. What do you make over the current and I don't know what else to call it other than political debate over whether or not we are currently in a recession and what is causing that debate? Well, a recession is typically defined as two quarters, six months of declining economic activity, less productivity. It's often, as you know, it's often associated with more unemployment, more foreclosures, economic difficulty. And so the that's the typical definition. There is a, a board that formally designates recessions, and they take into account more factors than merely two quarters of decline. This is to me just semantics. The question is, are we doing better or are we not? And clearly prices are going up, which is, is a main, which is a big problem. On the other hand, uh, the, the job market is, is still good. Uh, people, people are getting raises, not as much as inflation, but they're, st they're still above water. So it's, it's difficult to say exactly where our economy is because it's an unusual situation. We've mm -hmm. had the pandemic. Um, we have a war in, in Europe. We have some climate issues which are affecting productivity. So it's it's difficult to say. Are we in the best possible situation? The answer is no. Are, are we in a recession? Again, the, one of the big points in the first chapter of the book is that these terms sometimes impede understanding. Just look, instead of throwing a term on it, look at the world and, and, and see it in all its complexity. Yeah, the economy is having issues now. Some of it's okay and some of it isn't. Or, or I like to ask people, how do you feel? You know, you make this exactly. point a lot too, is that so much of economics, is it is behavioral science. Like that's what makes it different than purely math. And the way we all feel has great influence over where things are headed. And, you know, so ask yourself, like, how do you feel? Um, and I, I guess the other question I would ask kind of in, I guess, following that is, does it matter? Does it matter if we put the official label on it or not? 
I don't think it matters very much. Maybe some people see the label, would see the label and would act in response to it. I just, I just didn't see it as mattering very much. But what does matter, again, I'm not a psychologist, so maybe right. it matters more than I think it does. What does matter is is people's perception. And the point I make in the, in the book is that uh, there's a reason why the term for a human being who can't get out of bed, can't leave their home, can't be productive is the exact same term as an economy that can't be productive, a depression. Mm-hmm. But it's it's purely psychological. When you, you can test the skills of the workers before a recession or depression begins and right after, they haven't changed. You could test the industrial capacity before a recession or depression begins and after, and it hasn't changed. What's changed? People's outlook. And yes, the output outlook has consequences, just like your friend who's depressed and not leaving their apartment, they're going to lose their job and they're going to have financial difficulty. The same thing happens in an economy, but what sets it off is purely psychological. I just have to say one other thing. There was a student I asked like 10 years ago, I asked her if she took macroeconomics. She said, oh yes, it's all formulas. And it really (laughs) stuck in my head to this day. Because it's like a psychiatrist saying, "Oh, it's all formulas." You know, I speak to I speak to my patients, and it's all formulas. No or it's reason. all or it's all chemical, or it's all yeah. like it, yeah. It's there's a lot going on there. It's human interactions that result in in what we have today. And it's it's if if you're going to understand it, you need to look at the world and understand it in all its complexity. I, I think that's so true. So maybe one final question. What do you hope people take away from reading your new book, Understandable Economics? Oh, I think we're talking about it. I hope they take away that economics is not a bunch of equations as physics or biology is. It's it's a social science. It's like psychology. It's how we interact in the world and what the the, the results are in terms of allocating money and, and scarce resources, that, that's, that's what economics is about. And again, I saw in the uh, note, your notes that you had a question about what the point was, why, why is it important that people uh, learn, understand economics? And the point is that, why can't we leave it? The question was, why can't we leave it to economists? Why can't we just leave these decisions to economists? And economics is about Values. It's about how we allocate the $22 trillion of stuff our economy turns out every year. And it's not, you can't allocate it to a formula, just like the, the Fed. You just, you just can't put it on autopilot. Right. These decisions, they're not black and white as they are in physics or biology. They're, they're decisions that have to be made based upon our values, based upon our political preferences. And so, no, you can't just outsource it to, to economists. Because if you do, you're outsourcing your values to economists as well. This is something that people have to decide for themselves based upon their values. It's not something that gets spit out of a formula. That's such, that's so true. And and I do think, you know, I like I said at the very outset, I think you and I share a common mission. Even if we don't always share the same conclusions, I think we share a common mission of the importance of financial literacy and economic literacy to empower people to make better decisions for themselves that are informed, that actually is, you know, they understand that this policy that someone is presenting, what its implications are Mm -hmm. um, and what makes sense to them based on, as you say, all of their values, all of their perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's so important. And I I, I loved your book. I think it's very well done. Thank you. Um, 
And like I said, even if I don't agree with all the conclusions, I think mm-hmm. that the intent and the your your way with explaining complex topics is excellent. Um, so definitely Thank anybody you. out there listening, go check out Understandable Economics. Thank you very much, Megan. Thank you again to Howard for joining us today and for your mission of spreading economic literacy. If you would like to connect with Howard, you can find links to his website, LinkedIn, and Twitter accounts in today's show notes. If you would like to join me and the rest of the FFM Book Club in reading Howard's book, Understandable Economics, you can also grab a copy of that at the link in today's show notes. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and the hashtag FFM Book Club to catch all the discussion posts to come in December. Coming in the week ahead, we will get multiple reads on inflation for September, including the Producer Price Index and Consumer Price Index, on Wednesday and Thursday. On Friday, advanced retail sales will tell us how consumer spending is being impacted by all of the latest news. Also, Q3 earnings season is getting underway for public companies, so watch for potential earnings surprises to increase market volatility. Have questions about the economy or your personal finances? Submit a question for the Finance Explained podcast. Look for the link in the show notes anytime and I'll address it on one of our weekly episodes. As always, I so appreciate your support. It is your questions, weekly listening, sharing with friends, and especially your honest and thoughtful reviews that help make Finance Explained possible. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures.